Cade Mila Falta. Welcome to the Letter from Ireland show, where we travel in the footsteps of your Irish ancestors, visiting their homelands and telling their stories as they put down roots in so many places around the world. Hello, everybody, and you're very welcome to Episode 5, Series 6 of the Letter from Ireland show. Now, in this particular episode, it's one there for all you uh, Irish family history researchers, actually, because we try to address a particular problem that you will come across in Ireland when researching your Irish family history. And that's the simple fact that if you rely upon census information, so in other words, information gathered every 10 years or so in a country relating to the people living in the country, their whereabouts, occupations and so on, if you rely on that to track down the location of your ancestors in Ireland, well, then you'll kind of run into trouble fairly quickly if you, st- if you go before the year of 1901, because there are a lot of missing census. So as a result, there is this whole area known as census substitutes that genealogists rely on to actually, I suppose, kind of fill in for that particular missing data. Now, in this particular episode of the show, we actually chat, I chat to Jay McGarvey, our green room genealogist, who resides here in Ireland, about a very specific resource that we think you'll find very interesting, and it's called the Tithe Applotment Books. So, of itself, that title doesn't sound very promising, but I think you'll find it interesting as I pose seven very specific questions to Jane and she provides us with some very interesting answers. So on with the show, here is a conversation between uh, Jane and myself. And by the way, you can hear and rather find the show notes in a letterfromireland.com forward slash 605. That's a letterfromireland.com forward slash 605. Well, Jane McGarvey, how are you doing today? I'm good, Mike. Thank you. It's lovely to see you. Ah, oh, there you go. And um, Jane, I'm, I know that we're dealing with a subject today, and thanks very much for your time, because I think the readers and the listeners will actually really appreciate your insight into this thing called Tie the Plotments, which the name itself, it seems, would turn an awful lot of people off as being, you know, what the hell is that? It's too technical, etc. But I think what people will discover through this particular podcast conversation is we'll unwrap and unpack just how useful it is to Irish family history researchers. And I would like to do that through asking you seven kind of general questions. And we'll, how about Jane, if we just kick off with the first one? Go okay. ahead, Mike. So the first question I have for you, Jane, is to tie the plotments, okay? What is the problem that makes the tie the plotments a good solution for Irish family history researchers? The main thing, Mike, is the loss of the census records from 1821 to 1891. So let me get this right here. So in a lot of countries, we rely on census records going all the way back, let's say, to the early 1800s, to track the whereabouts of a family or an individual, uh, 10-year intervals, for example. That's correct, Mike. And it should be the case in Ireland, but we lost some of those. We did, yes. The ones through 1821 to 1851 were destroyed when the fire cart, four 
Quartz Fire burned in Dublin in 1921. Um, The original returns for 1861 and 71 were destroyed shortly after they were enumerated. So they weren't Um, thinking of genealogists of the future when they destroyed them, obviously. No, they weren't. They were destroyed at the time. And 1881 and 1891 were pulped during the First World War, possibly because of lack of paper. So let me see if this is correct. So so the first real full census information available online for family history researches is 1901? That's correct, Mike. There are a small number of missing elements from both the 1901 and 1911 census but the vast majority of records are available for those two censuses. Gotcha. Okay, so that's clear. So so there's a big black hole reaching back from that. And so we're kind of suggesting that the problem is the lack of those census. We need some other substitutes to actually fill in the information we don't have because of the destroy, the fact that they were destroyed. And that's where the tie of the plotments come in. So that's, that's very clear with regards answering my question number one. So maybe just to give a little bit of background, Jane, number two, my my question number two is, well, what exactly are these tithe allotments? You know, what was their purpose in history? They were an agricultural charge, Mike. They weren't officially a tax, but they were a, a charge applied to agricultural land to fund the established church, or that's the Church of Ireland. So that would be the Protestant uh, church, in, the main Protestant church in Ireland at the time. That's correct, yes. They replaced what the, the previous tax, which was a county cess or grand jury cess, which was initially put in place in 1635 to fund public works like roads and bridges. But this cess was only paid by larger property owners and it was viewed as deeply suspect. It was riddled with exemptions, and it varied widely between counties. Now, so straight away, you got me really thinking about this, Jane, with this, there's this body of information called the Tide Deployment, uh, Tide Deployment Books, for example, I think it's called, available, and I think it's available online for free at the moment, and we can talk about that in just a moment. But can you remind me again of the years that it covers? The tithe plotment covers the tail end of about the 1820s to the 18, early 1830s. Okay. And when we hear tithe and agri- Sorry, pardon me, I'm cutting across you there. But when we hear agricultural land, of course, we're talking about landholders. And therefore, it's something about the tithe plotments which actually will tie a person to a patch of land at a period in time. That be about right? That would be about right. Um Okay. So, so okay. So, I, I know I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, Jane, because I'm getting a little bit excited by this, to tell you the truth. Um, the fact that, A, it's, uh, I think it's available freely online, pretty much for the most part, and B, it could actually plug this kind of gap in the, the black hole of history for some of our uh, shared ancestry and so on. So, my, my third question is, where can the tithe plotments be actually accessed these days, if somebody wants to look at it? There are two different sources for that, Mike. Um, For the 26 counties of Ireland, 
or Southern Ireland era, if you prefer, whichever label you uh, want. I, I, I'm just looking at your face here, folks, because we're on Zoom here. And we're, we, we've, we've a lot of political nuance going on here as we chat. <laughs> they can be found at the National Archives online genealogy site. Um, genealogy.nationalarchives.ie And by the way, folks, a reminder, that's going to be in the show notes as well. So you'll see that. Uh, we'll give you reference for those a little bit later. Now, they also include some incomplete records for four of the six Northern Ireland counties. And that's Armagh, Down, Fermanagh and Tyrone. But they are incomplete records for those counties. So, folks, just to say it again, in the, the original island of Ireland, pre-1922, made up of 32 administrative counties, well, since then, of course, we have two administrative domains. If you're looking for one of the six counties of Northern Ireland, Derry, Antrim, Down, Armagh, Tyrone, Fermanagh, you'll find them up there for the most part. And for the other 26 counties, you'll actually find them in a different jurisdiction and different online place. I think I have that kind of right, Jane. It is, yes, for this particular set of records. Okay. Um, the six counties of Northern Ireland, um, the tide plotment books that survive, can be located through the Public Record Office for Northern Ireland, uh, PRONA's website, and that is www.nidirect.gov.uk forward slash PRONA. Okay, so so far, Jane, I've asked you what the problem is that the tie the plotment solve, and we've got that. We talked a little bit about just what the tie the plotment books are, uh, and just there, we talked. The third question you answered was where can they be accessed? Now, now let's so let's suppose folks after they listen to this podcast will be in a position to go over to these tie the plotments and have a look inside. And my fourth question is, what kind of information is actually inside those books that might be useful? to our researchers? There isn't a standard layout for every single tithe allotment book. Different information was taken in different parishes um, and different baronies and different counties. However, in general, you will find some form of mix of the name of the tenant, the immediate lessor, that's the person who rented the land, the acreage involved, and the rateable value. There are a few parishes where literally the return is just a total amount of tithes paid and no information whatsoever is actually given. Okay, so for, for a particular, let's say, townland in Ireland, as you say there, you would have a number of people actually listed and there are particular holdings to which they're held accountable for, for tithing to the established church. And how useful is this then to researchers? It can be incredibly useful. It may, because this is one of the few sets of records that actually survive for the pre-famine era. Okay. It may be the only place your ancestor is ever recorded. Very interesting. Because, of course, you're referring to the Great Migration, or even the kind of the, the dying off of particular families in Ireland, whilst part of those families may have migrated um, during and post-famine. And of course, the massive chain migration that happened after the famine as well. 
And I know, in fact, Jane, just to point out, a lot of our members, a lot of our readers as well, mention things like, I just can't find the records for my family because they all left during the famine and there were no records or census records available. But you're suggesting that this may be an interesting place to look. Correct, Mike. Do you know, actually, Jane, you just reminded me there, I was dealing with somebody yesterday in the green room and his Finn ancestors came from North Cork and he commented that they all left during the famine. So I took a moment because I know we were, I knew we were going to be speaking today to have a look in a townland called Ballykeating. And there he was, all the Finns lined up one after the other in around about 1826 as um, tenants on the land. And when I looked later into both the Griffiths valuations of the 1850s, in other words, post-famine, uh, and into 1901 census, they were completely gone from the area. So it's exactly the situation you're talking about there. And without the tie of the Ploppins, in fact, we would have no particular record because it was actually uh, pre-church records for that area as well. That's a perfect example, Mike, of the exact sort of place where you might be able to find um, a record. Brilliant. Now, Jane, just going on there to my fifth question, um, we, we talked a little bit there about the kind of information that you might find in the tithe plotments. Now, what are the limitations, if any, of the information or the lack of information? There's quite a long number of limitations with this set of records, Mike. For starters, not every household was included. Um Initially, the valuation was set at properties over three pounds of a value. And in 1838, this rose to five pounds. Um, not all land was included. Um, it was, remember, it was a charge on agricultural land. So towns aren't included. Oh. Uh, very stony, rocky ground was not included. Church land or glebe land land that used to be owned by a monetary, is not included. Um, some of the other problems with um, searching for the information is the records were initially um, scanned by the Genealogical Society of Utah, and many locations have been incorrectly assigned yeah. to the wrong parish. Oh, my gosh, there's quite a list here. <laughs> to the wrong county. And as you know, Mike, we have many townlands that the names repeat over and over again. And some townlands have villages by the same names, sometimes in the townland, somewhere entirely different on the island. Yes. Um, so it's not, if that knowledge wasn't there, in the first place, to put that together, it does make searching a little bit more difficult. Spelling of the locations have also changed. Oh, my gosh, These yeah. records were taken before standardisation of spelling. Which came because kind of with the mapping of around about the 1830s. Would that be about correct? I, it was probably another 50 years before standardisation wow. really started to take a hold if I said the second generation of national schools brought ah. in standardization of spelling. Um, so you have a lot of different changes in spelling. 
New parishes have also been created and parish boundaries have moved as populations have changed. The plot numbers used in the tithe plotment books do not correlate with either the office books or the Griffiths valuation. A lot of the tithes were um, sorted out before there were official ordnance survey maps. It only started in 1831. 1832 was the beginning of the first surveys with the first maps printed around about 1834. So there's not necessarily exact correlation with maps or surviving maps for every tie the plot and parish. Do you know, Jane, could I just pause pause there for a moment? Because I'm beginning to get a little bit discouraged. Um, it sounds like not only should I tread carefully, but I wonder, should I tread there at all? Tread carefully, absolutely. But do tread there. Okay. 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 So I do know, again, in the show notes, uh, for Greenwood members, we've actually a full workshop in there to help people with some of these kind of limitations and pointing them out. And indeed, we actually have a letter there as well, pointing out some with an example shown there as well. But your message is that the information contained in there is just too valuable not to go in there. So you really do need to go in there, but tread carefully when you go in there. Absolutely, Mike. It's the same for any set of records. We go on to our favourite, um, shall we say, ancestry tree providers, okay. and we type a name, and we will maybe find what we think we're looking for or not. We actually had a lovely example of this um, a few days ago within the Ask a Genealogist section. Annie O'Donnell found two baptisms for who she believes here is her ancestor, James Gleason, uh, both in 1839, both parents named James Gleason and Mary Carroll, both in Tipperary, but one in Terry Glass, and Wallen Ballon Lynch. Two different parishes. When I advised her to do a little bit more follow-up research for potential siblings, she has now run into a third set of children <laughs> um, in Newport. So we now potentially have three couples in Tipperary two adjacent parishes and one slightly further north, where there are three couples of the same name. Right. Now, there's still more research to do, so we don't have a conclusion as yet. But mm. that's the perfect example. And tithe plotments can, can sometimes help distinguish which family is which because it ties them to a townland. At a very at a specific point in time, yeah. Yes. And Jane, you said something just there as well, which really caught my attention. You said, as you say, you go to the search engine of choice and you type in your search terms, in other words, a name or a townland. But again, from what you say and from my own experience, my limited experience, is that you're as well off browsing the tie the plotments as opposed to searching because you're going to come across spellings that you wouldn't have anticipated 
for place names, sometimes for surnames, because of transposition problems or things didn't exist or townlands weren't marked the same. And um, you're well, you're much, much better off browsing around, let's say, a particular parish and looking, for example, you might have a townland called Lysheen, but it might be listed twice as Lysheen and Hishin, for example. I've seen that a few times, um, yes. simply because of different spelling mistakes in the transcription. So, you know, again, this idea of browsing versus searching, in other words, not being certain about the spelling. So you're better off browsing to get a better feel for the information in there before you actually go in and do a detailed search. Would that be about right? That, w- that would be pretty good for the 26 counties of Ireland. Ah. Go by browse. For the six counties of Northern Ireland, you don't have a choice. You have to search? Have no search facility. Ah, you have to browse. Okay. You download a large PDF file direct from Prone. And you have a visual book on your screen. So you browse with a cup of tea. And you visually turn the pages and read each page. There's no PDF searcher in it. Now, I will say in most cases, the writing is very legible. Now, I do hope that we're getting people really interested in as soon as, if you listen to this in a car, for example, pulling over fairly soon, digging out your phone or your computer, following the instructions in the show notes and having a look in the tie, the plop and books yourself. I know I'd like to kind of go in and look at a few things. In fact, you know, we were chatting earlier, Jane, we talked about uh, one of my, my own family. And this leads me on to the next question that they came out of a very particular townland in County Cork. And I could actually, is a townland called Foyle Namuk, and you'll find it again in the show notes, my kind of, link to um, this particular situation. But in one sense, going back to your original point about the problem that the Ty the Ploppins tries to offer a solution to, I can easily see my family, the Collins family in this case, in the 1911 census, which is the most recent available census in Ireland. Um, And if we were to bookend that going all the way back to, let's say, the townland in the 1820s, where hopefully we'll actually see them in the tithe plotments in the same townland back in the 1820s. So I'm just wondering, Jane, would you be okay if we just kind of chatted our way back in history from 1911 all the way back, let's say, through some of the books that were available and finishing off with the tithe plotments? Now, I know we don't have the information in front of us here just now, but, you know, in general terms at least. I think that would be a lovely idea, Mike, and a really good demonstration to show just how it can be done. Okay, okay. So um, maybe to kind of uh, talk first of all about the most recent, the 1911 census. And again, folks, in the show notes, I'll give you a link to the letter where I go through all of this. But you will find a Collins family, my own great-grandfather and my grandfather, in the same household in the 1911 census. And my great-grandfather is married to a lady called Catherine Sullivan, which is relevant, as we'll hear in a few minutes. Then if we rewind back a little bit more to 1901 census, you'll see the same family, more or less 10 years younger. And as we said earlier, Jane, going back any further than that, we kind of leave the census behind and we have to use different sorts of census substitutes. So would it be true to say then that the next, I suppose, kind of most relevant 
online set of records would be the Griffiths valuations of the 1850s as we go back in time? The Griffiths valuations would be incredibly useful there, Mike, because as well as the actual tenant valuations, you also have the Griffiths maps. Yes. And that gives can, can find you the exact house and location okay. of where your family lived. It's not the only set of records, but it's a good set to sometimes start with, particularly if you have them in 1901 and 1911. So, Jane, just on that, so if I, if, when I looked at my the townland for the Griffiths valuations, I think it was around 1856, 1853 maybe, thereabouts, uh, my great-grandfather came into that area in the 1880s and he married Catherine Sullivan, who was the daughter of a local farmer, and took over the farm. So in the 1850s, I see my great-great-grandfather, who is Timmy or Timothy O'Sullivan, and he's in the same place, more or less, I should say, mapping-wise, to the where we see the household in the 1901, it's now switched to become Collins, and 1911 census. But now we're suggesting that we can go back even further with the tie the Ploppins. Would that be correct? Yes, sometimes. Okay. Again, it's very much a case of whether your ancestor had enough land to be counted. I, so it's fantastic for farming families. It doesn't work as well for laborers and weavers and other tradesmen who may be in, a, in an urban setting. So it's not for it's not an answer for everyone. But you know, Jane was it, very interested. Sorry, pardon me. I'm just talking over you a small bit there. I, that that Timothy O'Sullivan I mentioned, who was my great grandfather. When I looked at him in the Griffiths valuations, I noticed that he actually had the tendency of a lot of land in the you know different kind of pockets, if you like, across the farmland or across the townland. And it it's probably one of the worst, um, I suppose, the, the least valuable land you could ever find anywhere on the island. It's very rocky, very scraggy, you know. And by 1911, a lot of these parcels had simply become 10-acre parcels of good land, you know, five acres good, five acres bad. But when I went back to the Griffiths, this guy, Timothy O'Sullivan, seemed to have quite a, an amount of land. And lo and behold, when I went back to Griffiths, uh, tie the Ploppins rather, of 1826, I think it was, there they were, the Sullivan family. So somehow they actually managed to hold enough land to get above that threshold you mentioned of, you know, was it three pounds for valuation and so on? And alongside Timothy O'Sullivan, I did notice that there were maybe kind of four to five others, and that was it mentioned in the townland. And of course, this was a time when the population of Ireland was actually very, very high, much, much higher than in the 1901 census and 1911 census. And yet, if I look in the 1901 and 1911 census, I see roughly about 15 households in the same townland. So this very visually gives me that idea that you point out that there was a cutoff, um, I suppose, kind of level for valuation and tie the plotments. And you're kind of lucky if you see your associated family in there. But in this case, there they were, the Sullivans of Foylnamuck. I was delighted. Absolutely, Mike. Um, it can be a wonderful thing to find. 
everybody's not going to find their family there. But a lot of the farming families, what you may find, even if you don't find your family, is who are the, fam- the names of the families that have the bigger farms? Yes. Who the neighbors are may be important. And that might People, be important, for example, because they get mentioned as witnesses and sponsors, for example, in church records, just for example. Yes. Absolutely. People lived in communities, but they also emigrated and migrated in communities as well. So when they turn up in Canada or America or Australia a week of years later, they're often still living beside their original neighbours from the home county. That's fantastic to know. I mean, I, I can see just how you set this up, as you say in the beginning, as being a census substitute, because it does give you that kind of snapshot of a place in Ireland at a point in time with regards to neighbours, family, and people you're likely to see in other records. And you know what, Jane, this is, this is a, so if we take the main record sets showing place and people at a time, as I mentioned there, we have the census of 1911-1901, then the Griffiths valuation, and then, of course, the tie of the Plotmans. But are there any other record sets in between that you'd like to mention as well at this point? Yes, there's several. Well, Skull, for one, does actually have fairly early baptism and marriage records for Roman Catholics. They start in 1807 for the baptisms and 1809 for marriages. So that's the place where, for example, my... uh, Foylemuck Townland is in the parish of Skull that you mentioned. It's in the civil parish of Skull, S-K-U-L-L, and the Roman Catholic parish of Skull, S-C-H-U-L-L. So a slight twist on the spelling there. But there's other records that can be incredibly useful for some people. For example, there's the 1814 jurors list for County Cork, mm. which is some of the Grove white abstracts. Now, they're not online. They're held at the National Archives in Ireland. There's also Bishop of Cork rentals for major tenants, which run from about 1807 to 1831, held in the National Library of Ireland. Find My Past has a lovely, lovely collection around 1840 called the Reproductive Loan Fund Records, mm-hmm. which were on loans lent out. There are fragments of the 1841 and 1851 census, which were searched for the old age pension abstracts. In between the tithe apartments and the Griffiths valuation, you have the um, house and field books. The house books for that parish are around about 1841 and the field books about 1851. So they can sometimes catch a family just before they left Ireland if they're not in the Griffiths valuation. Mm. Not online. In 1858, you then have the start of um, the current sort of will and probate records. And there are some diocesan records um, and indexes, or rather indexes that survive to those right back. So if your family had a bit of money, 
or a bit of land or a bit of property. And some of the most valuable wills from a genealogical point of view are wills written by spinster aunts and bachelor uncles who will literally leave their fairly unvaluable, meager possessions, a clock here, a set of teaspoons there. And yes, I have seen them down to leaving their best pair and second best pair of drawers. And I don't mean the wooden pair. <laughs> I know the drawers we're talking about there, okay. <laughs> And that has been some of the most valuable genealogical information. When you find a spinster aunt with a total worth of maybe a few shillings, but she has left her cousin, Mrs. Mary Smith, wife of John Smith of Foilnamuk, well said. Her second, be- her second best pair of drawers. Do you know, Jay, you're, you're touching on so much here. It's like, you know, I, I think the main message coming across to me is that first and foremost, yes, we do have the bookends, the most recent, the 1911 census. And now this new idea of, let's say, going back to the 1820s, uh, the tie, the plop and books, and then in the middle, we have things like, you know, Griffith's valuation has been the main kind of a, a gatherings of information at a point in time. But do not forget all these other fragments, pieces, different listings that were put together for different reasons, not for the genealogist, obviously. But between everything, you'll start to kind of pull together the web of the extended family, just who is who, and be able to cross-compare and cross-compile. So don't overlook it as your message there, isn't it? Absolutely, Mike. It's not always a clear path and a clear road. And sometimes you will end up with a list gathered from set A and a list gathered from set B and a list of dog licenses and a list of school records. And then you will start to cross-reference lots of different information. Sometimes it does mean you have to look at several families who share the same names. But, you know, I think we're the richer for it. We learn far more about the community in which our ancestors lived in. I've said before, it's the dash between the dates. I love that, John. So when someone lived from 1810-19, well, 1900 if they're lucky, it's the dash in between that's fascinating. Absolutely. It's the dash in between that tells us who our ancestors were, how they lived their lives, who their community was. And there are some lovely records that do provide excellent background to our research. The 1837 Topic Graphical Dictionary of Ireland by Samuel Lewis is one just such example that gives a lot of background of a quick snapshot of the parish, what churches were built, what the big houses were, what the main employment 
in the area was. So starting with something like that before you even hit the church records or the land records starts to give you a sense of the place. Do you know, I can just see us putting together, um, let's call it a spreadsheet or a timeline of these various record sets, because as you say, it's not just a question about searching for that needle in the haystack that is your one ancestor. It's about that browsing through these kind of rich holders of Irish cultural and social history down through the years, which gives you a much, much better picture of just how your ancestor lived, who they knew, what life was like for them at the time. Brilliant. Brilliant. I love that. Absolutely. What I recommend anybody to do is to start with John Grenham's Irish Ancestors website. And of course, folks, just to remind you that the access to John Grenham comes with your Green Room membership for free. So just to point that out as well, nothing's stopping you there. If you'd like to become a member of the Green Room, uh, you're most welcome and you'll hear information at the end of this recording in any case. John's site is my where to go compendium. It's where I always start a search and often end my pre-research research. I go there to see what are the main collections for the individual parish I'm looking for, where the surnames proliferate, where there are no surnames of that name, what the alternative spellings for that surname are. Lovely, yeah. And it's just such, to me, it's just such a fantastic resource. Now, I'd like to circle back into the tie the Plotman specifically, because, again, we want to encourage people to go in there and have a look yourselves. And hopefully during this particular podcast and this conversation, folks, You've heard a little bit more about what makes the tithe deployments useful to you, just what they are in the history, how and where they can be accessed, what sort of information you should look for inside the tithe deployments, and as well as that, what might be missing. We took a little bit of example of working one family, my own ancestors, back from 1911 to tithe the And maybe, Jane, just to wrap up, what would you think or what would you recommend people to actually do next? Well, one, as I say, one of the things I like to start with is John Grenham. But then the next thing I like to do is I like to explore the historic and topographical maps for the area. So this is alongside the tie of the plotments or, you know, in order to dive into the tie of the plotments themselves, are you kind of saying, well, don't do that straight away, get a bit more information first or? Often, Yes. If you have a look at the historical maps, now they're a flat view, so you won't see hills, you won't see valleys, you won't see mountains. Okay. Um, and a topical graphical map will give you an idea whether your town land sat between, sits in a valley, between two very steep hills, or, in a, or is in a fairly accessible flat plain. And a historic map um, of the time period gives you an idea of what the road network is, whether there are bridges, railways, waterways. Um, it can give you an idea of whether you are coastal, 
Now, Skull Parish is on the coast and has a number of islands, which are also part of Skull Parish. That's a good point. So I, I'll make sure that we put a link, in fact, to Samuel Lewis and the actual topographical dictionary maps in the show notes, folks. So that's great. And then, Jane, if we want people to specifically go into the tithe plotments, what kind of attitude should they have? Should they be browsing in there once they've maybe kind of figured out a little bit more about the townlands and what was around it? Well, Mike, I recommend if you know the parish of your ancestors, you go in and you browse and you take a time and you go through the varying timelines. If you don't know the parish or even the county of your ancestors, then using the ties allotments as a search tool for varying configurations of the name can provide an idea. Many of our ancestors did not move far between the tithe apartments and the Griffiths valuation. They may be a couple of parishes away, a couple of townlands away, but they're quite often still within the area. They may be over a county border, for example, but they're very often not far. The spelling of the surname may have changed. For example, we see McCune. M-C-K-E-O-W-N, fairly common high-frequency name in some areas, particularly Ulster now, but it, it was quite often M-C-K-E-O-N. Right. And different spellings. Connolly has many different spellings. So use um, those spellings as you browse and as you look and so on could be a very interesting exercise of itself. And in fact, the one we were talking about earlier as well with my own situation, looking at one townland in the 1911 census, the 1901 census, the, the Griffiths valuations, and back to the tithe plotments, and looking for the change in family names or indeed the continuation of family names could be a very useful thing to do as well. Absolutely. Um, even where many families did emigrate, quite often not everybody emigrated. Yeah. Sometimes the aunts would have stayed at home or the uncles. The eldest son may have got the farm, meaning all the rest of the sons had to leave so that he could get the farm. Um, there are many, many reasons. Um, some jobs were, were, were still there. Other jobs changed. Agricultural practices changed. Industry changed, not just in Ireland, but across the world. The industrialization of life and the advent of railways, bicycles, changed life. Do you know, Jane, I, I, I could be chatting to you all day about this because I find that your, your comments between the lines, so to speak, are fascinating as well. The by the ways and, you know, the social economic commentary, because that really explains so much um, as to why what you see in the records is actually there. Um, how, but we must do this again on some other, on some other subjects sooner rather than later. Um, so just now for the tie the plotments, what we will do is encourage people to actually have a look for yourself, dive in there, browse to your heart's content, connect with other record sets, 
And with that, Jane, I want to thank you so much for giving some time here to chat us through these fascinating record sets. And I'm absolutely looking forward to diving in a little bit more now with this bit of extra knowledge to help navigate my way. So, Jane, Jane McGarvey, thank you so much for your time. And I look forward to hearing some more questions from our members inside the green room, where I know you're going to be answering and helping lots and lots more people out. So thank you again, Jane. You're very welcome, Mike. And please ask the questions. The more questions you ask, the more you learn. And I'll finish with a quick tip. The best place to find out is try Google. <laughs> okay. I'm sure most people know where that is. Thank you again, Jane. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. Well, now, isn't Jane a font of knowledge when it comes to all things Irish genealogy? I do hope you found that show and uh, Jane's view of this very, very useful resource known as the Tide, the Plop and Books and much more beside. I do hope you found it very, very useful. And remember, you can actually find the full show notes for this particular episode at a letterfromireland.com forward slash 605. That's a letterfromireland.com forward slash 605. So that's it, folks. That's Mike Collins. Hope you enjoyed this week's show and looking forward to chatting again next week. If you've enjoyed today's Letter from Ireland show, we'd like to invite you to check out our special membership area, The Green Room. You hear us mention it a lot during the show. And you can find full details of The Green Room at letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. Our green room is the essential resource for anybody at any stage in researching their Irish heritage because it's where we delve into all the good stuff to help you break down those brick walls and really connect the pieces in your Irish ancestry puzzle. In the green room, you get access to online genealogists, extensive research tools, quick win training, as well as member-only access to johngrenham.com and a very supportive, active community to help you along the way with feedback and advice. The green room is the perfect place to be for anybody starting or continuing their Irish ancestry search. So why don't you come and join us there at a letterfromireland.com forward slash green room. That's it for me, but I'll be back next time with another installment of the Letter from Ireland show. And I really look forward to chatting to you then. Slán gafól, Karina. <laughs>